0: you take your Bible and join me in 1st Timothy chapter 4, 1st Timothy chapter 4, how to tell truth from error. In the book of Acts in chapter 20, Paul is coming to the end of his third missionary journey. Uh, it's about A.D. 60 or 61, and he has been ministering now for at least 20 to 25 years. He has traveled throughout the Mediterranean, planted churches everywhere. And now he's headed back toward Jerusalem, where eventually he'll be arrested and then taken on to Rome, where he will spend at least two years uh, in prison. As he's making his way back toward Rome, he comes to a little port town called Miletus, which is not very far from the city of Ephesus. Paul had spent more time in Ephesus than any other city where he had planted a church. And so he calls for the elders who are up at Ephesus to come down to Miletus, and there you have one of the most touching scenes in all the Bible. Because Paul, in essence, says, "I don't expect to see you again." Uh, he weeps, they weep, and he shares with them his heart, and he gives them a charge as well as one of the most um, moving and uh, disconcerting warnings in all the Bible. Because what he in essence, tells them is you just need to understand that in the days ahead, uh, false teachers are going to come against the church. And the tragic thing about it is that they're even going to arise even within you. They're going to come up within our midst. And so he writes in, or actually he speaks in Luke, records it for us in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. And just listen. Therefore, Paul speaking, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember. Well, when you come to 1 Timothy, you're coming to a book written to a pastor who is serving in the city of Ephesus, as we saw when we began our study in chapter 1, verse 3, where he said to Timothy, remain in Ephesus. And even then, he begins throughout the book a steady uh, warning uh, a steady drumbeat, uh, be on guard against false teaching and uh, false teachers. And so he says in chapter 3, if you want to flip over there for a moment, and I'm going to work my way quickly to chapter 4, but we saw this just a couple of weeks ago in verses 3 through 6. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other Doctrine. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith, from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk. And in essence, he gives us an example of two of these kinds of persons at the end of the chapter when he says in verse 18, This uh, charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And then in chapter 3, when he begins to instruct those who are going to lead the church, the elders, the pastors, the overseers, one of the non-negotiables of those who lead the church, at the end of chapter 3 in verse 2, they must be able to teach. And then in chapter 3, uh, as he kind of makes a turn in his argument, he kind of gives us the core of this book in verses 14 through 16 when he says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And then he gives us what is most likely an early Christian hymn or an early Christian confession that in essence encapsulates the entire career of the Lord Jesus. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, received up in glory now. In light of all that I have said up to this point, and including and specifically taking high uh, note of and highlighting this confession about Christ, now, chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. For example, they will forbid to marry. They will command to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Four. Every creature of God is good. Nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And though we'll not move on past this, verse 6 is worth at least reading, if then you instruct the brethren in these things, what things? The things he just said in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. If you instruct the brethren in these things, You will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. And so Paul wants to inform us and instruct us as to how it is that we can tell the truth from error, uh, Chuck Swindoll, in describing First uh, Timothy chapter four, verses one through five, says, "This is a text that tells us how to minister among the crazies." Uh, I like that. Uh, how do you minister among people who have gone nuts? Uh, who have lost their mind, lost their bearings, have gone crazy when it comes to basic bedrock biblical doctrine that is absolutely non-negotiable if we're going to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so, what is it that Paul says? Two overarching ideas. Number one, recognize that some will turn from the truth. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from uh, the faith. Paul begins by telling us that we just need to understand that people are not always going to embrace the truth. In fact, some are going to receive the truth and amazingly, they're later going to walk away from the truth. And so as a result of that. We have to always be on guard in terms of what we believe, in terms of what we teach, in terms of who we listen to. And so he begins by saying in verse 1, be concerned about false teachers. Literally, the Greek text says, now the Spirit in words says. It's interesting, the New King James says, the Spirit expressly says. The word expressly is not there. Literally, it is the Spirit in words says, and if you work your way through chapter four, you will see that the idea of the importance and the centrality of the word of God is highlighted in verse one, again in verse five, again in verse six, and again in verse nine. But I love the way it is said in verse one, the spirit in words Says. That's exactly what the Bible is. It is the Word which the Spirit says through men of God divinely inspired by His Spirit. Now, notice what he says there. The Spirit in words says that in latter times. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Latter times. Some people read that and they say, well, we're not at the end of the age yet. Or if we are at the end of the age, I don't know that. But that's not what the phrase means at all. Uh, John will talk about the last hour. Uh, some will talk about the last days. Uh, here, I believe the phrase latter times is simply a, a biblical way of designating that period of time between the first and second coming of Jesus. You say, time out. You're telling me that they were in the latter days in the first century? That's exactly what I'm telling you. And then we're in the latter days in the 5th and the 10th and the 15th and the 19th century. That's exactly what I'm telling you. So you're saying that the latter times, the latter times designates that period of time between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I believe perhaps we're in the latter times of the latter times. But again... You'll not get me to make any predictions about when Jesus is coming again. Uh, that's what fools do. Uh, by the way, there's a wonderful history of about 2,000 years of people who again and again and again and again have predicted when Jesus is coming again, and they all have one glorious thing in common. They've all been wrong. And therefore, if you want to join that group, you be my guest. I'm not going to do it. I simply recognize, though, that when Jesus came, Everything changed. We now live in a new expectant era, and we have been in the last hour. We have been in the latter times, the last days since the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a sense in which you can't have Antichrist teaching unless the true Christ has appeared. And indeed, he has appeared, and as a result of that, he is continually being assaulted by false teachers. So you need to be concerned. I need to be concerned. We always need to be on guard against the possibility of false teachers even infiltrating our midst here at Wake Crossroads Baptist Church. But then he says, all right, you need to be concerned about them, but how do you recognize them? How do you recognize False teaching. Well, he tells us that we must know the characteristics of these false teachers. And he gives us no less than four of them in verses 1, 2, and 3. First of all, he says, you know the characteristics of false teachers because they don't believe the truth. He says there in verse 1 that they will depart from the faith. That word depart, we got our English word apostasy from it. It means to move away from. It means you are uh, uh, you are stepping away from and walking away from something that you once held on to. Something you once embraced. Something you once believed. In other words, these false teachers did not start off as false teachers. But they moved away to false teaching. And you know, as I worked through this text again this evening, one more time before I came over here. One of the things that stood out to me as I went through the characteristics of false teaching is Jesus and his glory and Jesus and his preeminence and Jesus and his person and work are nowhere on the radar screen. In other words, they walked away from the gospel. They've walked away from the full deity and the full humanity and the sinless life of Christ. His death, His burial, His resurrection, the fact that He and He alone is the Savior. And they have departed from the truth. At one time they knew it. And now they've let it go, and Jesus is off their radar screen. Notice what the text says. They depart from the faith. And in what way do they depart from the faith? Or what is it that leads them to depart from the faith? These are terrifying words. He says, they give heed to deceiving spirits, and they give heed to the doctrines of demons. In other words, they're deceived. They think they're teaching the truth. They think they've got it right. They believe their way is a better way. They believe that new is better than old. They believe that you need a Jesus plus kind of system. And so as a result of that, they are deceived by certain spirits. And indeed, they now embrace what Paul calls the doctrines. It is the word, uh, the 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 we get our word doctrine from it. The word teaching from it. Either way, they now embrace and heed the teachings, the doctrines of demons. In other words. Satan has his systematic theologies. Satan has his commentaries. Satan has his encyclopedias and his dictionaries, and he has his professors and his pastors and his evangelists. Satan has set up a false church right beside the true church, and in tragic uh, instance after instance, he is more effective than the true church, what is called the pillar of the truth, of the one true and living God. Again, you and I cannot be too cautious. We cannot be too careful. Now again, I recognize you have to be be uh be a little careful here because you can become cynical. Uh, I fight against it, but I have to tell you, uh, I tend to start in a default mode of skepticism. It's just that well, you shouldn't be like that. Well I know that. Actually, no, I don't agree with you. I do think I need to be in a default mode of skepticism because false teaching is so rampant, it's so prevalent. I, you've got to work your way to get me to trust you as a teacher. Now, all you got to do is hang around somebody for a while, listen to who they exalt, listen to what they teach, listen to who uh, uh, of whom or to whom or to what. They bring themselves under authority, and it won't take you long to figure that out. But it takes a little time. It takes listening and study and diligence. And the fact of the matter is, if you are lazy and sloppy in your thinking, you are a prime candidate for, what does it say? Deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons. They don't believe the truth. Secondly, they don't tell the truth. Verse 2, speaking lies in hypocrisy. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. They're hypocrites. Their lives don't match up with what they profess. They claim to have a pipeline to God. They claim to be very close to God, but it is true in so much false teaching when you examine their moral lifestyle, both in terms of sexuality, in terms of money, in terms of things, they contradict the alleged loyalty to God that they profess. That's why again, this is for free. I will not give a penny. To any ministry that does not have public accountability. I will not give them a half a penny. That's why I never give money on the spot to anyone who tries to pressure me. You ain't getting nothing. Even if I later decide that I think you're authentic and worth giving to, on that particular occasion, you ain't getting nothing. I'm not going to be pressured into giving to something that I am not absolutely certain is going to do right by the monies that God has made me a good steward over. I can remember several years ago when Charlotte and I were first married. We had the sweetest couple next door to us named Mr. and Mrs. Cantrell. They were in their 80s. I'm 21 and Charlotte is 19. Uh, she made the best homemade biscuits with butter and jelly you have ever eaten in your life. Uh, they were really kind of funny. He used to be a Dallas police officer. His his claim to fame was at one time he chased Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, and he informed me that it did not matter uh, how uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway looked in the movie. They were meaner than snakes and evil and killed people. And they they were just they were wretched. And he says anyone that thinks they were nice people they just don't know. I still remember one day when Ms. Cantrell called me and said, You need to come over to the house. Mr. Cantrell is up in a tree. Now, what in the heck is an 87-year-old man doing up in the tree? Well, there was something up there he wanted to get, and I begged him to come down so he didn't fall down and break his neck. Well, anyway, all that to say, they invited us to the house one day to have some jelly biscuits. We're in the house watching uh, uh, TV and getting some jelly biscuits. And as I was sitting there, I saw all these things on their table in front of their couch of these tele-evangelists that they were sending money to. And I'm not going to mention any names tonight. I'm going to let the guilty remains uh, anonymous tonight. But, I mean, I just grieved. And I begin to say something about one of them. And all oh, she said, well, well, he just seems like such a, a nice man. And I said, well, yes, ma'am, he does seem like a nice man. But, you know, the devil probably seems like a nice devil, too. Now, I'm 21. She's 83. She's not going to pay attention to me. And uh, all I'm saying is be careful. Just because they're on TV, just because they're on the radio, just because they're big, doesn't mean they are of God. But the Bible says they don't believe the truth. The Bible says they don't tell the truth. They lie in hypocritical kinds of ways. And then thirdly, they don't even understand the truth. In fact, the Bible says speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own consciences seared, it is the word for which we get our word cauterized, Their consciences are cauterized with a hot iron. In other words, their consciences have lived and trafficked so long in the lies of their life, they believe them. They believe them. They they are no longer able themselves of telling the difference between truth and error. Do I believe Mormons think they know the truth? Yes, I do. I also think they believe the doctrine of demons. I think Jehovah's Witnesses believe that they have the truth. Yes, I do. And I believe they are sucked into and enslaved to the doctrines of demons. I think the same thing about Islam. I think the same thing about Hinduism. I think the same thing about Buddhism. Sincerity is never, ever the criteria by which you evaluate the truth. So that sounds mean. Well, if this book is true then what they believe is going to send them to hell. Now, I can either sugarcoat it and just let them go on their merry way to an eternal place of torment, or I can love them enough with grace and compassion and firmness to say, what you believe is not from God. And let me show you a book that does indeed reveal the truth about the one true and living God revealed in his son, whose name is Jesus. We must help them because their consciences have been seared, made dull and numb and dead to the truth. But then they don't live the truth either. In verse 3, I don't think he's giving us exhaustive list. But he's saying, let me tell you, for example, some of the things false teachers do. Number one. They forbid people to marry. And number two, they command people to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. They tell people, you ought not to get married. They affirm the superiority of a celibate lifestyle. Uh, You and I know of a very well-known denomination that does this for their ministerial leadership. It is called the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I'm not here to beat up on Catholics tonight. Uh, I have some friends that I believe are born-again Catholics, but do I think that the Catholic Church, uh, the Roman Church, in terms of its theology of celibacy for the priesthood, is dead wrong? Absolutely. And tragically, the, uh, the fallout from that wrong-headed theology has been tragic and uh, of a mammoth nature in America in recent years. The whole pedophile scandal among the Catholic Church. The fact that we have no way today of tracking how rampant homosexuality is in the priesthood of the Catholic Church. The fact that even a number of them are also unfaithful in a heterosexual kind of a way doesn't surprise me doesn't surprise me at all that pedophilia and homosexuality and adultery and fornication make its way throughout the uh, hierarchy of the Catholic Church. You say, why do you say that? Because God intended most men to marry. Yes, God gives some people the gift of celibacy for a, for a lifetime, very few, for a season, a few more. But by and large, God gives most people the gift of marriage. And if you try to argue that somehow a celibate lifestyle, not marrying, is a superior lifestyle to marrying, you have bought into a false teaching, and it's going to have all sorts of negative, tragic consequences. He gives another example. They forbid certain foods. They're they're vegans, Probably a bunch of vegetarians running around. I don't know. I'm not against vegetarians. Well, yeah, actually, I am against vegetarians. I like meat, and so I'm a I'm a uh, meatarian. I'm a carnivore. I I like that red meat. Okay, so but again, bottom line, matter of conscience in this area. If you as a as a matter of conscience believe that all you should eat uh, is lettuce and uh, Brussels sprouts and broccoli, uh, I will pray for you. You need it. But if that's what you think, then you just go right ahead. But you have no right to look down your condescending noses if you're more spiritual than others because you don't eat meat. There's nothing in the Bible that, forbi- that, that forbids that. In fact, the Bible says all this was made by God, and you should receive it with thanksgiving. Those who believe and know the truth will do so. In fact, here we are now testing the truth. How do we test the truth? First of all, we use the Word of God to gauge the truth. He says there again in verse 3, those who believe and know the truth, verse 5, that which is sanctified by the Word of God. And so what I simply do is I come to the Bible and ask, all right, what does God say about these things? And I go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and I discover everything God made is good. Sin messes it all up, but that which God made is good. Furthermore, I read in the Bible and i discover discovered that God says all sorts of things, both vegetables and fruits and meats, are good as a gift to be received with thanksgiving. And so when we give thanks, in essence, we're to thank Him for what the Word tells us is good. And so, use the Word to gauge the truth. Use prayer to give thanks to God for every creature. Verse 4 of God is good. Nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified. It is set apart and given to us as a good gift from a great God. How do I know this? By the word of God and prayer. Although in the context, prayer is primarily the means whereby we thank him for the good things that he has given us. Now, uh, we don't live in uh, A.D. 61 to 63. So for the most part, outside of Catholicism and maybe a few uh, cultic nut groups out there, the issue of celibacy is not a real big problem, probably not for anyone in this room tonight in terms of your theology about it. Uh, Furthermore, uh, most likely, being from the Deep South, uh, paganism or denying certain things that God created is not a a major issue down here for us. Now, my friend Mark Driscoll up there in Seattle, oh my Lord, that's like another planet. It's like Martians have all invaded the Northwest. And so they have all sorts of different kinds of issues up there. And so he has to deal with something like that a lot more than I do. But as I was thinking about this, I asked myself the question over the last week or so, what are some of the issues some of the very important biblical theological issues that we are indeed confronted with and that people do on a regular basis today reject either knowingly or by deception. And if you take your notes and flip them over, you'll see ten things I'm going to just walk through very quickly. Truths taught in the Word of God that are rejected today. And I'll just note them, make a comment, and bring our study toward a close this evening. Number one. The inerrancy and sufficiency of uh, the Bible. Now, that's where it usually, usually starts. There is the question that is raised in your mind, just as it was raised in the mind of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, by the evil one. Has God said, really? Are you sure? Is it right? Is it best? Is God holding out on you? And the Bible then is set aside this afternoon. I was talking to a young man that I've known since he was a little... In fact, when I used to umpire baseball, he was a wonderful pitcher. And I watched him grow up uh, through his uh, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, went on to college, uh, married a beautiful girl, and after 11 years, she walked away because of an affair with another man. And he was on the phone today with me crying. So said, I don't even know this woman. Now, you see, this is not the same person I married almost 12 years ago. And I said, and she professes to be a Christian. He said, well, she professes to be, but she just basically set the Bible aside. She's basically just said, I don't believe that God wants me to be unhappy. And in essence, what she's saying is, my way is better than God's way. And God's word is not true, because God's word says adultery is wrong. God's Word says divorce is wrong. God's Word says that when you commit sin like this, you should seek the Lord in repentance and in contrition. And so the sufficiency of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the truth of Scripture has just been set aside. Yes, it's set aside on very lofty theological levels in seminaries and colleges and universities. It's also set aside in everyday living like I just described right there. Secondly, it is rejected that God is all-knowing. And that God is also a God of wrath as well as a God of love. People don't like the God of the Bible. I don't think they ever have. And so today you have people wanting to whittle God down to our level. And so you have this movement called open theism, finite theism, that says that God cannot know in advance the free will acts of his creatures. If he did, we would not be free. And therefore, God is not omniscient. God does not know what you're going to do five minutes from now much less five hours or five days from now. he, He can guess, but he doesn't really know because he does not know all things. And then when you come to talk about the character of God, people do not mind at all emphasizing God's love. But when you want to talk about a God of judgment and a God of wrath and a God of righteousness and a God who actually will judge sinners forever and ever and ever and ever, people get very squeamish even people who claim to believe the bible begin to say well you know i know it says that but and then they open the door to the doctrine of demons and deceiving seducing spirits thirdly they deny man's inherited sinfulness and his attraction with idolatry i'm amazed at how often people will say to me when they look at a little baby isn't he or isn't she so sweet no she's not sweet she's a little sinner she's mean as a snake He's meaner than a snake. So you shouldn't say that about my little darling. I'll say about my little darlings and my little granddaughter. My little granddaughter is beautiful. But inside of little Maddie is a little sinner who is in desperate need of redemption. We don't come to this world with a good nature. We don't come to this world with a neutral nature. We come to this world with a nature bent, inclined toward sin. And as soon as we are able to sin, we do it. And we do it gladly, joyfully, boldly, and continuously. And apart from the grace of God, we would keep walking down that evil track of sin. We create in all of our lives idols, things that are ultimate in our lives rather than God. Things that we believe are most important things that we believe will bring us happiness and joy and pleasure and we set God aside and we put those things front and center yet we live in a world that wants to speak of the inherent goodness of all persons. And they have no problem setting up as a pedestal or on the pedestal of their idols, their sex, their, 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 their ambition for wealth, uh, their ambition for prestige. And I could go on and on and on. And yet we say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. They're simply seeking self-fulfillment. They're simply trying to find themselves. They're simply trying to, and on and on and on, they go with excuses of putting something in place of God in their lives. Number four, the real existence of Satan and demons. When I came to Southeastern Seminary in uh, 1992, uh, we still had a couple of theology professors that were around from the old days. Uh, I bought both of their class notes just to see how they taught systematic theology, and it was a very terrifying experience, uh, I will tell you. But one of the interesting things was neither one of them had a section in their notes on Satan demons, or angels. I later discovered the reason that they did not have a section in their class notes on Satan, demons, or angels, is they did not believe in them. They thought that they were simply a mythical creation of a pre-scientific worldview, but we have now outgrown that. And therefore, why should we talk about angels? They don't exist. Demons? They don't exist. Satan? They don't exist. Oh, we can talk about the demons you have to battle. But all we mean by that are psychological phobias that you've got on the inside of you that need to be corrected either by medication or by counseling. But those are not real demons, and so they're rejected out of hand. Number five, the sinless life of Jesus and his penal substitutionary atonement. In other words, we have today, as I shared just a few weeks ago, many who claim to be born again who also say, I believe Jesus committed sin while he walked on the earth. And we have people today who do not want to speak of him as a savior, but they don't mind talking about him as a martyr. Let me tell you something. He wasn't a martyr. He's not like Martin Luther King. He's not like Gandhi. I can keep on going if you like. He's not a martyr. He's a savior. He died in your place, and he paid the full penalty of your sin as your savior, not as a martyr. Paul was a martyr. Peter was a martyr. Stephen was a martyr. James was a martyr. But Jesus is a savior. He is not a martyr who simply died nobly for some cause he believed in. That, that is blasphemy. That kind of theology is the doctrine of demons. Number six, the exclusivity of the gospel. In other words, we now live in a world where people believe either one, everybody eventually is going to be saved, or secondly, that all roads will eventually get you to heaven, or at least they potentially can get you there. That's why, again, more than almost half of evangelicals, evangelicals who were surveyed, who said, I have had a born-again experience, and I believe that by putting faith in Jesus, I will go to heaven, but I also believe it's possible to get to heaven by doing good works. In other words, Jesus' way is good for me, but another way may be good for you. And again, folks, I don't want to be unkind. I do not. I know lots of sweet people who are atheists and secularists and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Buddhists and Muslims and so on. They're nice, they're sweet, they're kind in terms of the way we measure kindness, sweetness, and niceness. But folks, again, it really comes down to whether or not you believe Jesus is God and Jesus is truthful. And when he says he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, you know, it's funny, uh, those people who want to talk about Jesus in glowing, sweet, lovey-dovey terms in the secular world, it's funny how they just never want to talk about John fourteen six. Eugene Robinson, the homosexual bishop up there in the Northeast, who said, I was appalled by the Christian prayers that I have read that have been invoked at various inaugurations in the past. And I promise you, as a Episcopal bishop, I will not pray a Christian prayer in the cathedral there in Washington when I participate in that prayer service. I don't care how sweet he is. He is lost and dying and going to hell apart from a relationship with Jesus. And it's interesting, he doesn't want to talk about John 14. He'll talk about Jesus loving the outcast, which he did, and Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount, which he did, although they don't cover all of the Sermon on the Mount, because there's some pretty rough stuff in there. It's just amazing to me that the liberal theologians never, ever, ever, ever want to talk about Jesus and John 14, 6. They just don't want to get there because he is the reason you and I believe in the exclusivity of the gospel and that there's only one Savior and His name is Jesus. Number seven kind of dovetails into that. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's under attack because people today want to argue, want to believe that if you're simply good enough and you work at it, you should be allowed to get into heaven in and on the basis of your own merit. In other words, you have the ability or at least should have the right To earn your standing before God. Number eight. Oh, this is an easy one. The reality of an eternal hell. Uh, You don't hear hell preached about a whole lot in our day and time. And if you do, you're immediately marked as a raving lunatic fundamentalist. But again, it is true. Uh, Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else. The word is Gehenna. I think it occurs 13 times in the Bible, or it's 12 or 13, and whichever it is, we'll say it's 13, Just and, and you can judge my error later. But if it's 13, Jesus mentions the word 12 of those 13 times. If it's 12 times, he mentions it 11 times. The only time the word Gehenna is used in the Bible besides Jesus is James in chapter 3 of his book where he says the tongue is set on fire by Gehenna, by hell. So Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else. And the way he describes hell is not annihilation that is, you cease to exist, are conditional immortality, which means, well, if you trust Christ, you will then be immortal. If you don't trust Christ, then in mortality, God just allows you to disappear, dissipate, and waste away. Now, folks, I will tell you in my sentimentalism, I would like to believe that. I take, and if you do, there's something seriously wrong with you. I take no delight or no joy in thinking of people suffering, Consciously forever in a place called hell. I take no joy in that. But again, I don't make the rules. I don't set up the standard. I didn't write the book. The Bible is crystal clear that there is an eternal heaven and there is an eternal hell. You're conscious in one. You're conscious in the other. And there's no evidence at all that somewhere down the road in eternity future, God will change his mind and one day decide to evacuate hell and bring all those demons and all those persons up to heaven. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates that that will ever happen. But that's not a very popular thought today, and it's a a teaching that is seldom taught and is under severe attack. Number nine. The distinctiveness of male-female gender roles. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I saw today, and I've said this from this pulpit a number of times, that uh, there's now five states, possibly eight, that are considering legislation, not from the courts. That's the way that the the, the primary means whereby the uh, homosexual agenda has been pushed forward, but through the legislative system. There are five and maybe eight states that are considering now legislation that would indeed legalize homosexual and lesbian marriage. As I've said to you all before, I will oppose it as long as God gives me breath. But I have no illusions that that will not come to pass uh, in my life. It will. It will come to pass in my lifetime. You'll see it. I'll see it. It will be the world. Uh, that our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren live in. Why? Because we've abolished the distinctiveness of male, female, gender roles. Finally, the sexual parameters set by God for our good and uh, His glory. I, of course, I could beat up on homosexuality and lesbianism, but I'm not going to do that as I close. I'm going to beat up on heterosexual promiscuity. Because, you see, I'm convinced that's why we are where we are today. If we had continued to maintain the high, exalted place of biblical marriage, just in the church, just in the church, we would have been hard-pressed to get where we are today in terms of the whole homosexual, lesbian, sexual agenda. It would just have been virtually impossible to get there. But you see, when you and I try to step up to the plate and talk about the sanctity of marriage, our knees are cut out from underneath us because they point back into the church and say, well, you bunch of hypocrites. You're divorcing at the same rate as the secular culture. And you're being just as promiscuous as the secular culture. Look at your teenagers. Look at your young single adults. And you know what we have to say? We have to slink back into the, uh, into the corner, into the darkness, because it's true. Because it's true. And again, because so many people in our churches today are divorced, ministers are very hesitant to address the issue head on, both in a prophetic way. Divorce is wrong. God hates it. And in a compassionate way, God will forgive. And God can bring healing. But we make a mistake if we don't sound both the voice of the prophet as well as the voice of the pastor. And so these are just some of the kind of Doctrines of demons and deceiving, seducing spirits that amazingly are making themselves known not outside the church, but inside the church. So, brothers and sisters, we better be on guard that we might indeed be able to tell by the word of God that which is true and that which is error. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. This has not been a fun message at all. In fact, as I conclude, I kind of have just a, I don't know, uh, an uneasy feeling in my heart and spirit. I grieve. I grieve that your church has not, in love and grace and firmness, stood more clearly for the truth. And that we have allowed our fellowships to be deceived seduced and fooled. We've built up all sorts of legalistic rules and regulations that have nothing to do with biblical truth and the gospel. And then on the other hand, we have allowed ourselves to compromise and even whittle down, if not reject outright, basic Bible doctrine that is really not hard to understand. It may be uncomfortable to believe it, That's a different issue. And so, Lord, I pray that our church will always be a sweet, gracious, kind, loving church. But I also pray that we will always be known for those things that we believe, those things that we would even be willing to die for because we believe they are non-negotiable, eternal truth. And that to surrender any of that, is to begin to move towards surrendering the glorious gospel of Jesus. So, Lord, it's not fun to be on guard. It's not fun to be in a battle. But it's what you've called us to do as soldiers of the cross. So may we be good soldiers, faithful soldiers, defending the truth, standing strong for it. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.